Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. So welcome to today's show and uh, we've got a really exciting guest, one of a very small group of people who have um, volunteered um, or been uh, conned into coming onto the podcast more than once, so I must have done something right, but a big welcome to Isabel Sheldon, the Chief Strategy Officer from British Vault. Um, she appeared on the podcast a, a, a while ago now, over a year ago, um, a, two, oh God, a long time ago um, in a previous role at uh, the UK Battery Innovation Centre, but has uh, since then moved on to British Vault, uh, where she's been for some time now. So welcome to the show, Isabel. Thank you, Ryan. It's the first time I've been called an exciting guest, so that's that's a first for me. What? No, you are an exciting guest. It's always a pleasure when I see you around and about at industry events. And uh, I saw you talking a little while ago and, and asked if you do this, um, and you very kindly agreed to come and talk about what's happening at British Vault. Um, I was just thinking that a lot completely. My brain went on a, on the frets, but... It's quite some time since you moved on from the UK BIC to British Vault, isn't it? You've been at British Vault for a while now. Yeah, it's just over just over two years now. Wow. Um, yeah. So I was the first person into the company, and uh, my official start date was first uh, of July twenty twenty. So it's just just over two years now. Wow. So as sort of customary, um, if you could give us a quick kind of overview of yourself and your background and how you got to be doing uh, doing what you're doing that would be uh, that would be really good yeah sure i mean i've been i've been in the ev battery industry for something like 20 years now um started my own startup company in 2002 2003 and pretty much nobody was doing that then there was probably half a dozen people around the world maybe a dozen people around the world that were looking at this and I was working in the automotive industry at the time, and I happened to find myself in the Toyota Technical Center in Japan, in Nagoya, uh, looking at the first generation Toyota Prius and thinking, hmm, that's interesting, but I'm sure we can do a better job. Um, so I, I came out of my job working for the tier one and um, set, up, set up my own company and, and, and pretty much developed what became the the world's first commercially available plug-in hybrid, which was a conversion of the Toyota Prius, and we didn't do any didn't do anything with Toyota. It was done totally independently. Oh. Um, and I ran that business for ten years, developing battery systems for high performance vehicles, large buses. Did some fleet trials with some of the automotive industry in the UK, and then the global financial crisis sort of really kicked in from two thousand eight two thousand and nine, and we had enough. Um, opportunity and enough contracts to keep going till about the back end of 2012. Um, but as the R&D spending dropped off you know, dramatically, we had to close the business before it completely ran out of money. Um, yeah. And that, that was really sad because it's 10 years of my life and, and 21, 22 people worked for me at that particular point in time. So very hard times. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't on my own in the world. Um, lots of businesses were struggling to survive at that time. And then I ended up joining Ricardo as one of their battery specialists and then moving on to Johnson Matthey Battery Systems um, before moving on to, to UK BIC. So I was the engineering and technology director at JMBS. And uh, when that business was sold to Cummins, I transferred across and helped them integrate it into their business before moving on to UK BIC. Ah, and, um, and then from UK BIC to what has become a massive adventure, like a huge huge story at um at british vault um and as you mentioned earlier you were the first employee there um how did how did that come about 
Well, it was a it was an inquiry that was passed to me by by the APC because the you know Friday Battle Challenge and UK BIC and APC we all worked very very closely together, and it, it came to me as an inquiry about setting up a battery facility, a battery manufacturing operation in the UK, and being the business development director at UK BIC. Uh, naturally, that that was passed across to me, and there, there was a lot of ambition, maybe quite a bit of vision. Um, that was being um, manifested into the early stages of a plan. And it seemed to me that here was a couple of people that had a, had a great idea, but not much experience in the battery industry. And they needed somebody with a long history in the battery industry to steer this in the right direction. So over the first two to three months of those conversations, that's when um, it was decided that perhaps I ought to to join this new venture and, and provide some of the backbone in, in, in the battery industry and the connections out to all the key people in the industry to start building a team to to try and get this this up and running. Ah, cool. Um, and so then for, for people who don't know, although, I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock, particularly from the UK if you've not heard of it before, but uh, what is British Vault? So British Vault is a, um, a battery cell design and manufacturing company um, that was started just over two years ago. And really our ethos is to look at the four market failures in the battery industry. And, and those are capacity, technology, ESG and material supply chain. And I think it's pretty clear from the uptick in, in EV adoption over the last couple of years, it's really started to take off. There isn't going to be enough battery manufacturing capacity in the world uh, to meet those ambitions. So adding in capacity is really, really important. And we have 44 gigawatt hours worth of capacity going up in, in the UK and another 47 to, to 50 gigawatt hours potentially in North America. And we're, we're, we're talking to the Canadian authorities about that at the moment. Um, but also, it's not just about you know, building battery manufacturing capabilities, it's about developing the cell technology. And the second market failure is the technology market failure. Um, in the past, the battery industry has been built on a one-size-fits-all strategy because it's a scale game. You have to build in large quantities to get the economics right. And the, the, the history of the EV industry has meant that you know, in the past, EVs have never sold very well. Therefore, you've had to sell a small range of cells to as many automotive OEMs as possible to build up the volumes. Yeah. As we're moving forward into this more you know, significant electrified future, we can now start to do more customized and tailored cells, which are respecting brand values and brand attributes. And we're starting in the sports car sector, but moving into the performance end of the mainstream automotive OEMs pretty quickly now. Um, and, and really the one-size-fits-all strategy hasn't, hasn't really supported those, those uh, application requirements. Same thing at the commercial vehicle sector end. Um, you know, it's all leveraged passenger car cells and passenger cars spend 90% of their time doing nothing, yeah. whereas a commercial vehicle spends 70% of its time trundling around and being charged and used fully every single day. So clearly total, total cost of ownership and life cycle is really important. And at the moment, there's nobody really you know, domestically or locally manufacturing in Europe or North America to support, support that industry either. So they're completely underserved, they're white spaces. Yep. And as we move into those with local manufacturing, we really don't have a tremendous amount of competition in those market sectors. So that's a good place to be. Um, ESG is another one. That's the third market failure. Um, the industry is pretty much grown from where it started 15 or so years ago. And nobody's really thought about the embedded carbon content and how we can drive that down. So the numbers on that are if, if you buy your cells from China, it's about 96 kilograms um, per kilowatt hour of embedded CO2. Mm. Um, if wow. you take a global average, it's about 66 kilograms per kilowatt hour. And we're targeting 25. So about a quarter of Chinese emissions and a third of the global average. Um, we firmly believe that you need to have a sustainable company um, making products in a sustainable way to service a sustainable industry moving <laughs> forwards. And that's yeah. what electrification is all about. And then the fourth market failure is, of course, the material supply chain. And we've got very high prices at the moment, um, but we're working very closely with supply chain companies to ensure that when we launch our facility, we have materials at the right place, sustainably produced, that we can put into the battery facility to produce sustainable products. 
yeah. um, based yeah. on the first three market failures. So, so that's fundamentally where we are as a, as a business. Oh, wow. I've, I, you know what? We've, we've spoken a few times and I've seen you present British Vault a couple of times, and I'm not sure I've seen you talk in that way about it. That's a really interesting way of putting it, the, the four kind of failures that you're, um, you're addressing. And I can really, I can re- relate to, to all of those. One of the things, like as a as a project or as a company, you know, the the battery cell market tends to be dominated by big companies um, because of where it's at and the costs of doing these things. You've got your LGs and um, you know, Maratas and uh, Panasonics and 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 these these sort of mega mega corps um, with uh, revenues like a small country basically. Where does um, you know, British Vault, where does that kind of, as a, as a startup business, how, you know, how do you get yourself into that position um, where you can compete against that sort of players? And and who even, you know, it's not something that we really do in the UK. It's like trying to launch a very big company. We try to launch little companies and sort of small cottage industries and things. Like where where did that side of it come from, That that sort of, the ambition to uh, to to compete at that very large scale. Well, I mean, you're right. In the UK, we're used to doing things on a small scale and on a shoestring budget. Um, <laughs> that's been typically what where UK industry has been for a long time. But really, what that's done is it's armed us with the skills as a nation to be careful with you know investment capital and to spend it wisely and efficiently. So we've we've learned those skills over the last thirty or forty years. Yeah. on how not to waste money uh, and to maximize the opportunity in front of us. I mean, really, if you look at the big six manufacturers, they're, they're really struggling with an existing infrastructure, existing manufacturing operations, existing supply chains. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very difficult for them to pivot that, considering the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars they've spent in setting it up into a slightly different view of the future. Um, so that, that tailored and customized and low CO2 um strategy that we've put in place we we can only do it because we've had a blank sheet of paper in front of us we've we've had an opportunity to reimagine a manufacturing solution for cells and if you're sat there with 10 facilities under your belt that are already cemented into the ground if you want to really consider changing the tack of the company you've got to reinvest hundreds of millions of pounds all over again which clearly isn't doable Um, and as we went through launching into the startup phase and we're coming out of that now we're now into the scale-up phase because we're actually putting you know facilities in place and we're starting to do stuff now yeah um if you if you really want to stand out from that crowd you have to do things differently and you have to create a different approach otherwise you just end up in a very much a me too situation so we needed to focus on technology and providing performance providing products that people actually wanted to have put into their vehicles um enable vehicles to behave in a way that they haven't been able to behave before and really to capitalize on that opportunity because these these two market sectors we've chosen as our, as our entry points aren't really that small um <laughs> if you look at the commercial vehicle sector it's like 150 200 gigawatt hours by 2013 if you look at the you know any automotive application over 350 horsepower it's going to be around about 700 gigawatt hours worth of demand by 2030 so there's a terawatt hour of demand almost to go out there. Mm. And at the moment, nobody's looking at it because they're all stuck in that one size fits all. Let's serve the, the mainstream automotive industries. So that's where we that's where we differentiate ourselves and do things differently. And and one of the big challenges in the UK, I mean, you, you mentioned that we're really efficient with capital. That's a very nice way of putting the struggle with access to capital that we have for business. So there's always this sort of weird paradox that UK is sort of the the financial center of the world uh, for a sort of investment banking and whatnot, but actually it doesn't really invest in business in the UK. Um, and and so a project like this of a sort of startup business of, you know, immediate unicorn and billions of, of investment and stuff just doesn't tend to happen here. How, how have you guys kind of attacked that and managed to, to fix that uh, particular part? Because that, that the access to capital is a really key enabler in the whole uh, the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, you have to think about a funding plan and how you're going to do this. And it's not all just about capital. It's about 
having a, a, a string of fundraising opportunities in different areas. So there could be debt involved, there could be equity involved. Obviously, government grants are important in signposting the validity of a plan. And of course, we've now got confirmation, 100% confirmation of the 100 million non-repairable grant from UK government. Yeah. Um, and that's not an unusual approach. And it's been done in various different locations around the world, you know, to get the government's back you, the capital flows, you can raise the debt. Um, it, it, it's a standard model of fundraising. Outside um, the UK. I think when, <laughs> yeah. Well, outside of the UK, but also in the UK too. Um, I think that, that UK funders are, are really interested in what this energy transition is going to mean. Mm. Um, Fundraising, is, as you well know, Ryan, is, is, is always difficult and always challenging, especially at the moment in, in the current geopolitical yeah. arena. Um, it takes longer to get those investors over the line. Um, but we're not just focused on, on UK entities to, to raise the funding. Um, it stretches right around the world from the Far East, um, sort of places like Malaysia and Indonesia, through to the Middle East, where there's a lot of investment capital, a lot of risk capital. Um, to the US, as well as European uh, funding bodies as well. Um, so it's a real mix. And, and really, the only UK relevant part of it is that the first facility is going to be here in the UK. It's not just serving UK interests. It's going to sell right across you know, the European geographical area. Yeah. And then the second facility will be based in North America. So this is a, a global proposition with the UK core IP element, which is, which is important to understand. Cool. Ah, fascinating. So, so if we kind of move on then to talking about um, the technology, and there, there's a couple of things happened recently that were really um, interesting with what you guys have done. Um, one of those was the the acquisition that you announced recently, um, which which gets you into uh, manufacturing d- different format cells. So, would could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, clearly, I mean, there's there's a real focus on largest diameter cylindrical cells. And some of our premium automotive customers are, are very much looking at the 46 diameter cell as a, as a potential. Yeah. And we call it the 46XX because um, different customers want different lengths. So we go from 70 all the way through to about 105. Oh, wow. um, but maintaining that flexibility means that you can have technology that's relevant um, parametrically to a wide variety of different automotive OEMs. And you can do different things inside, um, which gives you the performance benefits that, 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 that we're looking at um, pushing out into the market that, that are in development now and are looking pretty good. In addition to that, we've got a 28, 26 and 28 millimeter diameter cells. Um, and we will be choosing one of those diameters moving forwards. Um, but that gives us some specific advantages in the relationship between energy and power, which has always been a real challenge for battery technology. You can do one or the other, and we figured out a way of doing both. Um, so, you know, a high capacity cell that competes with the best on the market that can deliver 10C peak discharge and 6C continuous discharge and charge times in between 12 and 13 minutes. Um, these are these are game-changing metrics that our customers are looking at and saying, actually, this is this is market-leading technology. We need to have those in our vehicles. Yeah. So we, we found a lot of those skills and an existing product portfolio that could be adapted and modified um, within EAS. And it seemed an awful, make an awful lot of sense for us to go and pick up that company and the people that work in it and provide the ability to scale those products through to volume manufacturing, which is something they didn't have the opportunity to do before, um, which has been really attractive, not only from, from our product portfolio perspective, but also from the EAS's team perspective, because they finally get the opportunity to see their products going into the mass market, which would be, which would be re- which is really interesting for them. Yeah, I can imagine. Because actually that business has been around for quite a long time, hasn't it? It's not a sort of in one shape or another yeah yeah so it used to be called gaia many years ago yeah. um the gaia battery facility in germany so uh so yeah a lot of experience and a lot of history there and that i mean that's another key element so it gives uh as a business it gives you a toehold in germany um and and some access to some um, good r&d capabilities there and what what exactly was it that they 
had was it a sort of production technology or a particular kind of cell construction tech like what what was it that they had that was really appealing well it was really a combination of of all of those things really um if you're going to be making large diameter cylindrical cells you need you need to control the manufacturing process really really carefully and i think uh, tesla has obviously come to understand that um over over the last 12 months um so the the manufacturing techniques and some of the key capabilities that they offer at the scale that they're at at the moment um, has meant that they have demonstrated the ability to control that manufacturing process at a certain scale. Um, so it's a really, really good starting point to move that into mass manufacturing. Um, that's something that has been developed at EAS. That's something that we would we want to uh, adopt in later phases of the facility once it's been optimised. And things like um, bipolar battery technology, whereby you know we can put you know, ditch a lot of the containers and uh, you know, the casings of, of cells and, and make supercells um, that's highly relevant for chassis integrated battery systems, for example. So there's a number of things in the background as far as the IP that we've picked up is mm. concerned that, that will be highly relevant to a lot of our customers moving forwards as we try to put improved EVs on the road and give better performance. Okay, cool. And I mean, that. my next question was going to be about the sort of you probably answered it there, but it's maybe not the answer that I was hoping for. Um, so there's this debate about cylindricals or prismatics uh, or, you know, the very large format cell to pack type cells. And and I've been known to be like, no, 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 cylindricals is the optimum format. And uh, I, I really like cylindricals, but I'd got... Um, Shouted down the other day, someone was like, no, prismatics and all the OEMs are going prismatic, which I actually, I don't think they are. I think they're more. So what's your kind of two cents on that? Uh, where do you see cell format going in the future? And I'm guessing at least in part, it involves 46XX type cells uh, for some applications. But where, yeah. where do you see it going? Well, I see you know, the larger format cylindricals as being a, a major push over the next four or five years. Um, so clearly moving into 28, 26, 28, 46 diameter cells with varying different lengths means that we can catch an awful lot of application requirements that you probably couldn't do with the 21700 that weren't really, really practical. We're still doing the 21700 because it's um, much easier and, and very well understood to, to get to, to a product that we can sell in the market pretty quickly. And we have customers, I mean, our, our first pre-offtake agreements are already in, um, which reserves our entire um, first phase uh, capacity. Um, so so that's, that's now gone. Um, and we need to build further capability to be able to supply other customers that are looking for 21700s. Um, but the other format that's really interesting to us is the prismatic format. And... Um, yeah, that's really applicable into the commercial vehicle market. And we have development activities to get to our A samples and B samples as fast as possible because we have customers who are working with us and will be looking to place offtake agreements for, for those cells in, in the coming 12 months. Um, and in particular, if you look at some of the low cobalt or no cobalt solutions that we have, Outside of China, we don't really have any direct competitors uh, for those uh, in prismatic formats. So it's a clear white space and clear water for us to, to go and play in and actually get cells out into applications. Nobody else is going to be playing catch up with us. I mean, we, we're moving really fast as a, as a business, especially on the product development front. We're about half the time um, that a, a company like LG or Samsung would take to develop a product and get it out to market. Wow. So, so you are you know, there isn't a sort of a winner for you between the prismatics and the cylindricals. There's just different applications for for both prismatics in commercial vehicles, cylindricals in passenger vehicles, different sizes. That's really interesting. You sort of um, got in there subtly that your, uh, your, your, all of your, your production, initial uh, production capacity has been, um, been booked out in these offtake agreements. That's, uh, that's really interesting. How 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 long will it take to get you your sort of first production up and running? How how quickly do the prismatics follow through? How long will that take to get uh, prismatic products up and out in the market? So we're putting in place a scale up facility, and uh, that will be operational sort of the quarter of next year. 
And that gives us the ability to make sea sample products and get it out to, to customers for use in vehicles. Um, so we'll be selling product from 2023 onwards, um, which really does bring that revenue opportunity significantly forwards. And, and part of that pre-offtake agreement that we've already got is uh, as much as you can sell, we will take. As much as you can make, we will take. Yeah. Um, kind of kind of agreement. So that's that's really really positive. And we'll be adding in um, a second line um, in that scale up facility. Um, towards the end of next year. And uh, that's probably going to be large format cylindrical cells, but could also be prismatic depending on who comes and reserves capacity next. Um, so so that, that really is the start of it. Um, and we will be revenue generating from 2023. The main facility probably won't be at full flight production until sometime in 2025. Um, you know, the equipment will get bolted in. You've got to commission it. You've got to optimize the process of which the scale-up facility really helps us to do that uh, and means that we won't be wasting as much product as we you know, get the yield rates up um, through the scale-up facility. But we'll train all our staff in, in the scale-up facility. And by the time they get into, into CAMAS and start operating the, the really big stuff or the multiple versions of what we'll have in the scale-up line, uh, the people will already be able to press the appropriate buttons and twiddle the right knobs uh, and be yeah. familiar with the equipment, which means that we can... We, we can optimize and, and scale up and ramp up production pretty quickly um, compared to doing it on, on a main, main line um, from, from the offtake. And, and that is, um, so another, another interesting part of your business, you've got the, the big factory that everyone will see, um, which is in Northumberland um, in Camus, which um, we've talked about before and sort of, um, where my family are from originally, so it's quite nice to see that going in there. But you've also got this other facility, um, scale-up facility, like research. And is that the same as your research and development, or is is there a third? There's those two facilities basically in the UK, and that's in the Midlands, isn't it? Well, it'll be three facilities because our R and D facility will go in in, and that's going into Leamington Spa. Um, so the the R and D and the scale-up is being kept in the West Midlands area. Um, uh, and really because there's existing talent in the industry that we can tap into. And of course, it's the heart of the automotive industry in, in, in the UK. So it makes sense to, to do that there. Um, so those two facilities will be you know, really doing the early stage R&D development and getting through into volume. And then we'll just transfer direct up to Camus to, to, to make sure that we, we get into large scale giga, giga kind of volumes um, as smoothly as possible. It's all about de-risking the business. It's all about making sure we give ourselves as few surprises as possible. And when you're dealing with automotive customers, including the big blue chip companies, um, and we're talking to all of them, um, they like to see de-risk de plans for industrialization. So that pilot scale facility is absolutely critical to make sure that we can demonstrate milestones and waypoints that we can hit and hit in a realistic way to give them confidence that as we get into production we're going to be able to provide the kind of quantity of product they're looking for okay cool so so you'll have three uk facilities r d scale up production and then series production that's really cool i've heard people talk about the challenges because battery plant battery manufacturing is this sort of very continuous process very hard to control and once you've got a, a plant in production it, you don't want to mess around with it basically <laughs> uh, so it makes sense in terms of scale up um elsewhere or you know was there, is there a reason to not have it on the site um or is it just that the big factory is going to take such a long time to build that um you've got to kind of concentrate on that in that location and get up and running in parallel with the, uh, the the scale up and the other stuff elsewhere, or was it just the skills and things? Well, it's a combination of all things, really. Um, obviously, if we're if we're building the fourth largest building in the UK, um, that takes quite a bit of time to pile all the ground, and mm. there are certain things that you need to do for the whole facility that you can't do in stages. So, piling is one of them. Um, you couldn't build phase one, get it up and running and then start piling the ground next door because, you know, you, you've got very accurate coating technology that would be disturbed. 
and having ripples in a in a anode or a cathode coating on a foil isn't very good for durability of your cells or, or performance. So there are certain things that we have to do in one go and, and setting up some of the infrastructure for the whole facility um, means two things. One, your time scales are slightly longer than if you were just building a, a discrete part of it. And number two, you have to deploy a little bit more capital to be able to get those things in place. Um, so, so that does take some time. And, um, you know, we didn't want to have a, a huge gap in between the back end of the R&D capability in, in time before we got up to cameras and started producing it in very large volumes. So the pilot line really does slot into that gap and make sure that we've got a continuation of activities from you know, the materials down selection through to the cell designs and development through to scaling up through to through to manufacturing at Camus. Um, and, and then really, you know, it's about the availability of facilities to be able to put the pilot line into. Um, at the Ham Hall facility, the shell and core of the building is already there. Um, so it's a matter of going and agreeing a lease um, rather than just building it from scratch. Um, yeah. We'd much rather not take up existing free space if we can. I mean, you have to do for a big factory, you've got no choice because they're huge. Yeah. Um, but the other facilities need to choose from what's already there. And we found two really superb buildings to house, house those two facilities in. Oh, fascinating! Um, so, so, so then we're we're progressing on three fronts, and um, that's it's really clear how all that's coming together. And you you mentioned something um, again, just sort of in passing earlier about cobalt free. Um, so I wonder if you could just uh, sort of expand on that a bit more uh, in terms of what you've got coming on that front, because it's a cobalt's a contentious ingredient for battery cells. Um, some terms of how it's handled and produced and, and things like that. So getting rid of it is a is a is a really good good thing to do. Well, getting rid of it is really hard because you need the cobalt <laughs> for stability reasons. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know a company yet that has successfully demonstrated um, a high nickel material with zero cobalt in it. Uh, I don't think that that that's been done yet. Not a practical way anyway. There's lots of theories about how it could be done, but nobody's demonstrated it so far. Um, so reducing cobalt is really important, going for a high nickel, low cobalt mix, um, and then looking at the cobalt supply chain instead of turning our backs on places like a DRC, because um, if you do that, you just chuck a load of people out of work, you know, yeah. people that feed and educate their families and their children. Um, let's work with the DNOs on the ground and try and improve the working conditions, you know, really stamp out child labor, provide the IT systems that gives you proper traceability and you can improve the health and safety. So really lift all boats as much as we can. And um, because that's that's the point of what we're all trying to do. We're trying to create a better environment for everybody. And that means all the way upstream in the supply chain too. However, um, it, you know, high nickel doesn't provide all of the solutions for all of the applications. And we've already said that one size fits all isn't gonna work or be fit for purpose moving forwards. So you need solutions that are higher durability, higher cycle life, things like the commercial vehicle sector and off-highway applications, yeah. but also for things like stationary energy storage. So you would typically go for a lower energy dense solution, which may be an LFP, for example. Um, but you're also you are giving quite a bit away in energy density. You know, you're coming down from will we'll be in excess of 300 watt hours per kilo in our prismatic cells, about 308. Um, if you've got an LFP cell, it's in between 118 and 200. So it's about mm. two thirds of the capacity. Um, but there are things you can do with the more advanced phosphates and um, add in different materials that can start to bring that up to about 240, 245 watt hours per kilo, which again will give us a competitive edge in the market, but still give us the durability that we need to service things like the commercial vehicle sectors. Okay. So you, you, you see there being a place in the in this future market for LFP technology alongside your different blends of um, NMC as well? Well, I think LFP is only the starting point. I think you have to go to a more advanced phosphate for, for it to be widely adopted. Okay. And that's the path that we're taking. Ah, okay. Interesting. So it's it's a sort of special, special uh, blend, if you like. And that's... Je ne sais quoi involved. <laughs> okay, yeah. I can imagine... Um, that's that's really interesting because we've seen lots of people talk about LFP, um, seen 
Tesla bring it back into some of their vehicles um, because they had the space so they could sort of live with that lower um, energy density. But um, I have wondered where, what the direction of travel would be in the industry as to whether or not it would just sort of eventually fade out um, in new applications. But uh, it does keep seem to having these um, resurgences and, and finding new uh, new places where it's useful, um, which I guess a lot of that is driven by the, the kind of challenges with NMC type technology. Do you think that's where it fits in? Well, yeah. I mean, if you, if you think NMC is really good for for long range, mm. um, and you know we've got a situation at the moment where you know the price parity with internal combustion engines um, is is still a thing. Um, beyond twenty thirty five, that's no longer a thing because if you can't buy an internal combustion engine, there's nothing to compare it to. Um, but but people are still really focused on range when they go into a showroom, even if they don't need it. If they only drive 30 or 40 miles a day, they'll still, oh, I need to go 400. Um, I think the electric vehicle market will mature over time and people will will start to understand that they're spending many thousands of pounds more on battery technology in their vehicles than they actually need. Um, So I think range requirements will will start to soften in the future, um, especially for more city type applications where you don't need to have those those long ranges. And people will realise that you can buy a cheaper car if you end up with a smaller battery and yeah. therefore that's that helps to solve the price parity problem and once we get to that point i think even in the mainstream automotive circles um you will start to see lfp become become a, a significant part of the industry because if you're you know happy with the 200 250 mile range car and you can save multiple thousands of pounds by having more than one with an lfp battery in it then that's probably where people are going to go in the future we've already seen that with tesla in the model three yeah 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 interesting some markets where it just really uh, makes a lot of sense um to do that and so 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 you sort of sell format kind of there isn't a winner basically there's a bit of everything um although cylindricals in passenger vehicle prismatics commercial vehicle you you you've touched on uh, but we didn't talk about it the sort of sell to pack um what do you make of so there's i mean that's basically been led by these very large blade cells that have started to come out uh, the blade packs um to me i look at that and see a lot of risk <laughs> and complexity um so of the the very very large format cells like that there's a lot of things you've got to get right with the manufacturing process and very hard to control if you've got a problem with one you've got a problem with the whole pack basically which is always the nice thing with cylindricals they're easy to sort of self-isolating in that sense um so i'm talking it down there i <laughs> said so just shut up and get your opinion but what do you think of those that sort of cell to pack type concepts with a huge uh cell formats do you see that being something that will come in in the future well i think it's interesting because deployment efficiency of battery technology is always going to be a critical thing moving forwards we we need to you know, maintain a good match between range requirements and the capacity that goes in, into, into a vehicle. LFP can provide some of those solutions because you can do a, a greater depth of discharge, therefore you don't need to overcapacity the pack quite so much to be able to achieve it. But you do have lower energy density to start with. So to pack is interesting because it starts to partially resolve some of those um, volumetric efficiency pieces um mm. if you can sort the cells really really close together um then you can really take advantage of that ratio between active material and uh, and the actual pack volume of course you you've got to use a, a real super safe chemistry to be able to do that because the propagation issues if using high core can be quite challenging to overcome yeah. um so that means lfp is going to be interesting advanced phosphates make it even more interesting um, because you're you're partially dealing with the energy density deficiency by increasing from 180 to 200 to around about 240, um, which will make those cell-to-pack solutions super interesting. Um, there are obviously challenges. You know, if you need to repair those packs, if there's some damage, uh, accident damage, for example, it's much more difficult to do those uh, do those repairs because it's more chassis integrated than sitting in modules or individual cells in a cell. Um, but once we get to that stage, I think some of the activities we've, we, we've got on, on the go with EAS um, 
in bipolar batteries um, will provide some significant improvements in energy density. Um, and they are by their very nature more chassis integrated than, than individual cells that are just strapped closely together. Um, you know, getting to very high energy densities with phosphate type cathode materials is really interesting. Uh, and, you know, that bipolar solution looks as if it can achieve that. However, all the other companies that have looked at bipolar have ended up with very low vol volumetric energy densities. Mm. Um, whereas the solution that we have in our back pocket doesn't have that 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 incumbents. So when um, you say volumetrically very sorry, when 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 you say bipolar, what what is it you mean by that? So it's a method of constructing constructing the cells where you have a series count of cells within mm. one container. So you don't have individual discrete cells. You have it all in one container. Right. And you're removing a lot of the um, um, the electrode materials, you know, copper and aluminium. Um, you're putting anode and cathode back to back, and there's a special technique for doing that. Um, you need to create seals between the different anode and cathode stacks to make sure that you don't get a leakage of voltage across. Um, and really the, the development activities that have been ongoing in that area internally have, have really got some really promising results. Um, and that gives us energy density numbers that are significantly higher than even nickel today using a phosphate cathode material. Um, and gives us volumetric numbers that are close to what is achievable today with some of the high nickel materials. So a different approach is giving us a different technical solution. And if we come out to the end of that development with something looks really promising it could be globally game-changing yeah no that's um that's fast fascinating um that that sort of technology so it, i mean it's really clear that there's a heck of a lot going on you know like sort of battery cells i think a lot of people like with all of these things people who aren't in the field think well surely that's all done and the chemistry is the chemistry and you know what you're going to do but it's really clear right down to the format and the the uh you know different kind of cell chemistries at fundamental levels there's still a heck of a lot of activity going on and and you guys are, are really pushing forwards with the technology side and that not just the manufacturing play oh definitely and you know some of the some of the comments in the past have been well if you compare yourselves to some of the big chinese manufacturers who have got three thousand phd students working on battery development how can you compete with that <laughs> yeah. um well, my answer is always give me 60 people who really know what they're doing and we will more than compete with them. Um, because, you know, that long running history in battery development is, is really important to understand what is possible moving forward. So you can more easily get through discounting what's gone before that didn't work. Mm. And quite often people have said to me, you know, oh, sell to pack it's something that's new or sell to chassis it's something that's new. No, it's not. We, we, we did it in the mid 2000s. Mm. Um, it's just that the industry wasn't ready to adopt electric vehicles. So we sort of like put it on the back burner. Yeah. And now it's a question of dusting off those those plans and those developments and revisiting them again, because we've, you know, for those of us that have been in the industry a long time, we've been around these these things before and we've already figured out half of it. Um, so now it's coming back into vogue. It's a lot easier for us to accelerate that and get products out to market. Yeah, um, that's brilliant. It's really great to to see you doing that, and obviously with that, that you know UK kind of um, base, and and for me particularly, um, with up in the northeast, fantastic to see that the benefit that's going to bring to the northeast as a, a region. Uh, looking forwards, then, um, actually, I've missed a question. <laughs> that's probably going to annoy you a little bit, but. Uh, we couldn't i never get annoyed with you ryan never oh thanks is um solid state batteries says ducking <laughs> so. oh solid state yes that's a really really great subject and um you know as we we announced last year we're, we're setting up an spv which will be kicked off later this year with oxford university and warwick manufacturing group and a couple of commercial partners um because solid state is something that everybody should be interested in because it is you know, the potential holy grail of, mm. of battery technology. I think our bi bipolar development actually gets us some way there. Um, so that's that's why it could be game-changing, solid state, without having to 
you know, tackle all the problems of solid state. There's a lot of noise in the industry at the moment about solid state. And in reality, most of the solid state developments, and I'm not going to name companies, are more of a hybrid type solution yeah. with a gel or a, a catholite type system. Um, they're not really proper lithium metal anode solid state, solid, solid electrolyte solutions. And, and the reason for that is, is it's really, really hard to get it right. Um, so you've got surface chemistry problems. You know, you don't have a liquid. You have two very hard flat surfaces that you're trying to push up against each other and make sure that materials interface works properly and is low, low resistance. Um, you've got dendrite problems um, as you strip off the lithium and, and put it back on the charge and the discharge. You end up growing lithium in places you don't want it, and it goes through that solid, solid electrolyte, and it causes a short. When you're you know, stripping the lithium off, you create voids. And when you've got voids, you're losing surface to surface contact. These are all significant problems that have yet to be overcome. And that's why our project with Oxford University is so interesting because the, the scientists and academics at Oxford spent an awful lot of un time understanding why it hasn't worked yeah. and really figured out some fundamental issues that need to be corrected. And we, we think our solid state program is probably in the best place to solve those those challenges rather than going down the hybrid route which really doesn't quite get you to where you need to be mm. um so if we do a solid state it will be a proper solid state battery it will be a proper solid state solution it won't be a fudge or a, or a hybrid and that's why we're investing in it because we think if we can crack that um it might take a little bit longer than some of the other companies that have looked at the hybrid solutions um but if we can get to a proper solid state system then it will be a game-changing technology and therefore worth investing in. Um, the intermediate steps aren't quite so interesting, in, yeah. in my view. You're not that much better than lithium-ion, to be honest. Okay, so so it's it's sort of on your radar, but it's potentially something that's a long way off in the long way off in the future. You think, like from being commercially? Well, I think it's on our radar, but it's being worked on. Okay. Um, yeah. But, but to work on it properly and create a proper solution rather than an intermediate solution is the way that we want to approach this. So we'll definitely be doing the work over the next five, six years. Um, but is it going to be ready and available by 25 or 26? Mm. I don't think anybody's going to be there with a proper solid state system in that time frame. Right. Okay. So, so, so that segues in. It does segue in. You'd almost think I did it on purpose, but uh, I didn't. <laughs> But, uh, so the future, looking forwards, you know, if you had to sort of make some predictions and, uh, and, and put some things down, what are you excited about? Uh, what do you think gonna, we're going to see happening in the sort of near term to middle, middle future? So I'm talking about the next sort of two to five years, uh, anything, you know, 10 years time, we'll all be flying around in spacesuits anyway, um, or teleporters, but, um, in the, in that kind of addressable future, what 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 do you think is going to happen, and what are you most excited about? Well, I think the thing that really interests me, the things I get excited about, was you know I've been talking for many many years that standardisation of, of battery cells is not going to, to be fit for purpose moving forward, um, because you just drive comp compromise into the applications that they go into. So you need something that's modified and, and changed and more suitable for those application requirements. And we're starting really to see the momentum building on that now. Um, so I think you know, vehicles going on on the road that people are going to walk into showrooms and buy that respect brand attributes and brand values is going to be an important part of the adoption piece moving forwards. Mm. I think the maturity of the market for smaller battery packs where, then, where, where range is not really a need, um, I think is going to be much more commonplace by the middle of this decade, um, you know, two, three years time. Um, so I think that cost of ownership, that cost of purchase piece will be addressed by a certain amount of realism coming into the growth of the market moving forwards and, you know, dif different vehicles to suit different requirements is, is going to be a big, big piece of this moving forwards. Yeah. I think there's quite a bit of headroom left in lithium ion yet. I think, you know, to, to get to the mid 300s in mortals per kilo in volume is, is going to be really interesting. So again, that will reduce pack size. Um, I don't think capacities are going to grow that much more. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, 300, 350, maybe 400 miles is, is all that people will need. 
And there's going to be a big drive into the efficiency of the vehicle, which means reducing weight as much as possible. So that's that's where I think you know, the energy density comes in and, and plays a big picture. Um, but more than anything else, I think, you know, all these cycle plans that are being announced and brought forwards and the model range is increasing is going to create a bit of a crunch um, for cell manufacturing. There's not going to be enough cells to support the demand moving forwards unless companies like British Vault actually, you know, bring forwards their investments and, and, and build and put those facilities in the ground. Yeah. So my prediction for sort of 2025 and 2026 is that if you're making quality cells of the right performance and, 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 and safety characteristics, then you will have a line of customers at your door. Um, and I think the automotive industry has just started to wake up to that fact. And that's probably why we're so busy <laughs> on the sales front. Yeah, it's got, speaking on the sort of other side of, you know, working, doing pack integration and things like that, it's definitely got harder and harder to get um, cell uh, supply. And even for some quite big programs now, the, the larger cell suppliers uh, can't support it or won't support it. Um, and and that is a that is a challenge. So unless you can commit to megawatt hours of, uh, you know, cell procurement, you're in a difficult spot. And, and I've certainly had that issue, even with some pretty big brands. Because it's, you know, people forget it's the automotive, but you've got, other sectors like robotics now taking very significant quantities of cells, um, aerospace starting to take really significant quantities of cells as well. So there's um, there's lots of new markets opening up for battery systems, not to mention huge things like grid storage as well, which I think is, um, we've got to get more grid storage set up to get away from blooming gas. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's going to happen quite quickly, I think. So yeah, it, it's a, uh, interesting time at the moment um and uh, it really really great to see you guys coming through so so anyway i that's all we've got time for and um i know we've run over a little bit but thank you um for spending the time talking to me it's been a it's been a real pleasure it's always a pleasure to come on the podcast uh, ryan it's been been great to to share some of our our journey with you and um Although there's a lot that we can't talk about because it's confidential. Um, some of the technology developments and obviously some of the customer pieces we have to keep very confidential. Um, I think we're in a really, really good place to really start to build or take our place in building a European. Um, by European, I mean, we're still European at the end of the day, yep. um, despite you know, the past couple of years. We haven't moved the country. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we didn't tow it off into the into the Pacific or anything, but having a European manufacturing industry is going to be really, really important. And I, I firmly believe that we shouldn't just be focusing on transplants from other areas of the world. We need to have domestic capability, um, because we have the talent in this country and within the wider European area to do this. Um, so we shouldn't be relying on on China to 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 stand up an industry. And the geopolitics at the moment really means that we we really have to do this because we have to be in control of our own destiny. Yeah, yeah, on multiple fronts. Uh, brilliant. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Is. Thank you. No problem at all.